text today is Matthew chapter 14, verses 34 through chapter 15, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennariset. And when the men of the place recognized him, they sent around all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many touched it were made well. And the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, well did Isaiah prophecy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do, uh, do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. And he said, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your word, and we're incredibly grateful for this space as we come together and study and learn. And so we ask you to bless us, impress these words upon our hearts and our mouths and our minds, and may we carry them with us everywhere we go. Amen. Good morning. I cannot hear or say the word tradition without thinking of Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition! Everybody has traditions. I would assume most of you all have family traditions, ones that were passed down from generation to generation, and maybe others that you created within your family unit. Tradition! But there's also religious traditions, right? Uh, I wear a collar. That's a tradition. It's a, or the manner in which we sing hymns and psalms here. It's a, it's a tradition. We have traditions of the church. How we participate in our liturgy is a tradition. Right? How we participate in liturgical seasons, colors that we may use, traditions. Even the fact that we do pickle shots before volleyball on Wednesday, that has now become a tradition. Traditions in themselves are not intrinsically bad. Actually, I would argue that some traditions can be enhancing to the human experience and to the godly experience when used appropriately. But the issue becomes when traditions become elevated or they become legalistic which basically means the same thing. When they become binding, when we treat a tradition like it is something of religious doctrine. And this should come as no surprise, because as we speak here many times, the human heart is sinful above all things. So tradition misapplied 
can become and does usually become idolatry. And it can lead, I think it can lead people to pride. Because if you think about traditions, traditions by themselves are always works-based. And faith is always heart-based. Traditions are works-based. Faith is heart-based. And I want you to keep that in mind as we chew through this, this big piece of text today. So we'll start with verses 34 and 36 again. It says, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennaraset. I, I really think they should teach a seminary class at pronouncing the town names and the people's names. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were made well. So we just come off the storm and the boat. Jesus walks on water. Peter walks on water for a bit. Peter sinks in water. Jesus saves Peter. They get on the boat. They calm the storm. And now they end up in this land, this, this beautiful plain. It's between the towns of Capernaum and Magdala. And, and they've come to this area, this, this small... It, it wasn't even big enough to be classified as a town. It's like a plain. It's a land. It's an area. And we don't know exactly what Christ's plans with his disciples were, but maybe it was some quiet and some reflection and some prayer after just being around a crowd of over 20,000 people. But like what always seems to happen when Jesus moves around, word spreads and crowds gather. These are people that have heard of his healing, people that have heard of the miracles that he has done, and they want that. They, they want something from it. I want to get healed. I don't want to be sick anymore. And there's some irony to this, I think, is that these people want one thing. They want something physical from Jesus. They, they've heard there's a man that can heal the sick. I want what he has. But they, they don't know what they actually need. They need spiritual healing, which is what Jesus really wants to give them. But they, they, come, they come for physical healing. Jesus wants to give them and wants them to experience true restoration, complete restoration, spiritual restoration, but they don't even know that's what they need. They come single-minded focused. And I think what's interesting is you look at how Christ responds to these people that come with this single mind. They want just something from him. They don't want a relationship. They want something from him. You could argue maybe they were there for superficial reasons, but even though they were there for that, what does Jesus do? He extends his grace he extends his grace so he can demonstrate the free mercy of God. He heals them. He gives them what they've asked for. As many as touched his garments were healed. It's an example of God's mercy on people who don't deserve it. We are people who have received God's mercy that don't deserve it. And it's during this time that the Pharisees and the scribes come to Christ. And they're coming to condemn him. They already believe that he's a heretic and he's a blasphemer. They've, they've called him out for things, for rules and traditions that they feel like he has broken. And ultimately, they want to kill him. But it's political. It's always political, isn't it? These people flock to Jesus. He's making these huge impacts, small towns, big towns, feeding the multitudes. What would happen if the Pharisees just kill him right then and there? Uproar. I mean, he's not even in a town. The Pharisees had to travel to a small land to track him down to confront Jesus because they want to build their case. They want to build their case in front of the people to say, look at this man. He's a heretic. He's a blasphemer. Don't listen to him. They're trying to rally support for the people that are around them to believe the thing, the heresy that they believe. 
15, verses 1 and 2. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. You see, some background to this is probably really important. We, we've talked a lot in church about the Pharisees and their approach. You could think of them as kind of the ultra-Orthodox. These are the interpreters of Jewish law. They're supposed to be the experts of Jewish law. They are the keeper of what is called the oral tradition. There's that word, tradition. And this oral tradition is, is them wanting to be more conservative, to hold to a higher standard than God requires. But there was so much arguing about what that standard should even be. That's what the oral tradition is. It's rabbis arguing back and forth about how to fulfill Jewish law. It's, it's Pharisees and scribes and scholars like nitpicking and splitting hairs on things to determine what's, what's the best way we can legalistically keep this law. Here's an example. Deuteronomy 6.9 says, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the argument between the rabbis, like, what do we do? Do we go out and actually write? This is serious. Do we write them physically on the doorpost? What are we, how, do, how are we supposed to fulfill this commandment? Is it a, a physical writing or is it more of like a representative, like our house should be a place where you could experience God inside the house because we're keeping the commandments? So the rabbis argue in the oral tradition, they argue, 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 and you know what they decide? They decide that the way to fulfill the commandment is that you put a small scroll two-thirds of the way up on the doorpost, pointed inwards in a case called a mezuzah, and that scroll has written on it Deuteronomy 6.9. You shall write this on your doorpost. And if you were to go to Orthodox Jewish homes today, you would see this. Right? Bible says write it on your doorpost. Rabbis argue a whole bunch to figure out how we can extra keep the law. I thought we should make a t-shirt. It says Pharisees love laws. <laughs> I wish Jason was here so we could ask him to make us some church shirts that say Pharisees love laws. So they argue to make this legalistic tradition, how, how, do, we, how do we do that? And then if you don't follow, you're, you're, you're breaking the rules. If you don't put the mezuzah on your doorpost, you don't write them on your doorpost, you're breaking the rules. And they treated everything, all of the commandments, like this, right? Scrolls on doorposts with words saying to put scrolls on doorposts on doorposts. It feels like one of those mirrors when you look and it's both mirrors and it just goes on forever. So this is the world, the functional world the Pharisees are in. And they had this one, which they still do, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews today still do, this tradition of washing their hands before eating. Now you may think that's probably a good idea. If you have children, it's an excellent idea to have them wash their hands before eating, Right? Cleanliness is good. But see, the Pharisees weren't worried about like, getting the dirt off of their hands. They weren't worried about physical cleanliness. They were worried about ritual defilement. So if Jews came into contact with a whole variety of things, a dead body is one of them, a menstruating woman is another one. Actually, ultra-Orthodox Jews today, men will not shake the hands of women that are not their wives. You might not know that. Because they're worried that the woman could be menstruating and that will make the man ritually unclean. So there are these, all these things that make, that make the Israelites, the Jews, unclean. So part of the ritualistic tradition is before you eat, is to ritualistically wash your hands so that you are now clean. Do you see all the works? Do you see this works-based system? So these Pharisees are literally coming to condemn Jesus, saying, your disciples don't follow the tradition of our elders. They don't even make themselves ritually clean. And... Look, they're hanging out with all these dirty people. I'm sure you touched somebody that was ritually unclean. 
your elders don't even follow the tradition. And we have to pay attention to how Jesus responds, the Prince of Peace, who also came with a sword. Verses 3 through 9, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, before we break through this, I want you to think about how Jesus just responded. The Prince of Peace condemned them. The Prince of Peace condemned them. He called them out. He turns it right back on them. You break the commands of God for tradition. You break the actual law of God, and you rationalize it with your own bastardized law. You break God's actual law because you claim your tradition is law. It puts you in control, not God. And then, and then he points it out with the Ten Commandments. This is compassionate Jesus. Part of Jesus' compassion is condemning sin. The Prince of Peace condemns sin. It's important for us to remember. And then he gives them this example from the Ten Commandments. You're to honor your mother and father. It's an imperative. Whoever reviles his mother and father, the imperative is must surely die. It's in the Ten Commandments. Still is, actually, kids and adults. Still is. And what he's doing is he's pointing out a particular tradition you may not be familiar with, but it's called the Corbin. You see, the Corbin was a sacrificial offering that Jews would go make in the temple. And it was, it was sacrificial in a whole bunch of different ways. It could be animals, it could be food, it could be financial but it was part of their requirement to go and give to God, the Corban. <laughs> and these, the Corban was actually controlled by Jewish law, by tradition, by the oral law. And, and this is what Jesus does to show like, how these Pharisees bastardized God's actual law and made their tradition sinful law. You see, honoring your mother and father means caring for your mother and father. Actually, I was thinking about this just the other day. I'm really saddened by the number of care facilities for old people. We were actually driving in the car this morning talking about how you, you can see part of the reason we live in clown world is we venerate youth. Like, that's the silliest thing in the whole world. <laughs> like, we should lift up the people that have the least amount of experience and are the most emotionally immature. Now, obviously the youth grow into things that will build into the future, but who should we be lifting up? It's those who have the experience, the wisdom, and knowledge who have come before us. Because Ten Bucks says they probably made the mistake you made before you made it, and if you would have just listened to them in the first place, you might have avoided some pain and some suffering. But we've, we've, we've treat old people here like they're a burden. Ugh, burden. Let's get mom to a home. Let's get dad to a home. See, if you live in generational families, generational families don't ship their parents off places. But they, they care for them. They don't ship them off to a place so they can go do crafts and then ride in a bus once a week to go to the mall on a field trip, like you're in daycare. 
Generational families live in communities that care for each other, that live with each other, that support each other, because honoring your mother and father is a command. And that looks different in different seasons of life. When you're young, it means obeying and listening. When you're a teenager, it means a little bit more responsibility and also obeying and listening. Obeying and listening. Doing what your parents ask without grumbling, without eye-rolling. And then as you continue to grow, it means taking accountability, listening, confessing, taking on more responsibilities. You guys all do. My thigh kids do a great job with that. And later, it means raising your own family and having many grandbabies. We're shooting for 50. That's our goal. Yeah? 50. And then you'll have responsibilities to bring them by so we may hold the grandbabies and love on them. And you bring them so the great-grandmas may hold the grandbabies, the great-grandbabies, and love them. And then, as we get older, you have responsibility to care for us and provide for us because we cared for you and provided for you. Because God told you. So it's a command to honor your mother and father, to care for them appropriately, emotionally, financially, physically. We aren't to turn away our parents when we have resources to care for them. But this is exactly what the Jews did. This Corbin, the, the set-aside portion, maybe your mom, mother or father needed something. They, they needed some food or they needed some money. And what would happen is you'd say, well, actually, like, that, that, I mean, I'd give that to you, but that's the Corbin. That's for God. Sorry. Can't, can't have that and became a rationalization and an excuse to not have to share. And see, the thing about the way the legalistic system works is you didn't have to like go take the Corbin next week. You could put it off for per perpetuity. Uh, I mean, we still set that aside for God. I mean, we would give that to you though, but it's God's, sorry. It's an, it's an excuse, it's shenanigans, like totally. And it's this forever excuse that could be used for not having to fulfill a commandment because the tradition said, you can do this. There's a workaround. Sorry, it's for God, not for you. This is what Jesus is pointing out when he says you're using your tradition to justify not fulfilling a commandment, you hypocrite. You're saying your tradition sits higher than God's law. And then he throws some prophecy from Isaiah to really throw the salt into the wound. Verses 8 through 9, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Tradition, the commandments of men, but teaching it like it's doctrine. But that's really it, isn't it? That, that is the definition of a hypocrite. The person who says one thing and acts a totally different way. It's vanity. And when people worship like that, it's heresy. What I love is I love the way that Jesus takes command with the truth. He condemns, but he's still the Prince of Peace, and he takes command of the truth. You see, the Pharisees come to call him out, to make a spectacle of Jesus in front of all of these people, to prove to him to be this blasphemer, and he doesn't follow Jewish law, and look how bad he is, show all these people. This man and his disciples don't even wash their hands. They don't even... Follow the basic commandment we teach children. Wash your hands ritualistically before you eat. What does Jesus do in verse 10? 
and he called on the people. So he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand. It's an imperative. It's commanded. Listen up. He who has ears, hear. You need to hear what I'm about to say and you need to listen and pay attention because it's really important. 11 through 14. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. He directly attacks Jewish law. Just right attacks Jewish law. You've probably heard of the word kosher. It's the word kashrut. It actually just means fit. It doesn't mean blessed or holy. It just means food that is appropriate for Jews to eat. If you want to get into a place that can hurt your brain space for legalistic laws, it's the laws of kosher. You can't mix milk and meat. You can't mix any byproducts from either of those two things together. And then there's all these sub-rules. You can have milk before meat and wash your mouth out with a glass of water, but if you have meat before milk, there's some arbitrary time. I don't remember what it is. It's been years since I was a Jew. Two hours, three hours, six hours, whatever. But that's enough time that they was like, because you don't want meat particles in your teeth to touch the milk. Because then you're going to violate the command about not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Because the rabbis argued in the oral tradition and said, ha, the way we're going to fulfill that is you can't have a cheeseburger. I didn't have cheeseburgers for a really long time. True freedom is found in Jesus Christ and bacon cheeseburgers. So the Talmud, this oral law, codifies all these rules around food and eating. And if you were to become ordained as a rabbi, rabbinical ordination looks much different than biblical ordination. Rabbinic ordination is predominantly always around the law. It is a study of particular areas of the law, areas of the Sabbath law, areas of kosher law. These rabbis study and, and, and memorize and learn all of these nuances of the oral law that they treat, they treat as commandments. The lawyers. The Pharisees were the lawyers before the lawyers. That's why there's workarounds to everything, right? And that's why, that's how they bastardize God's law, by providing all of these workarounds. The Sabbath has tons of these. Well, you can't do all this. 39 prohibited laborers on the Sabbath come out of the oral law. But then there's workarounds. If, if you hire your Christian friend, they call him a Shabbos goy. It's kind of a rude term to call. You basically get a non-Jew to do your work for you you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath, but you do it via code and symbol. If I clap twice, it means turn the lights on. If I clap once, it means turn the lights off. Right? It's kind of crazy. It's a workaround. Ah, this is God's law, but we found a workaround over here. You see, these, these Pharisees with the lawyers before lawyers, and Jesus calls them out specifically, and he attacks the law of kosher. He says it actually doesn't matter what you put in your mouth. It doesn't matter what you eat. It matters what comes out of your mouth. I mean, to the point that he points out that the people that are doing this are blind. Leave those people alone. Like, they've been presented the gospel. They're not listening. Their hearts are hard. This is the blind leading the blind. And people in the first century knew some things about blindness. There were a lot of blind people. So what happens when the blind lead the blind, right? The blind needs somebody to help them see. What happens if a blind person leads a blind person? They fall into the pit. They fall into the pit. If two sinners, if one sinner is leading another sinner, the road only leads to hell. 
right? <laughs> it can't go anywhere. It can't go anywhere productive. They end up in the pit. Very little has actually changed, by the way. There's nothing new under the sun. So look at, look at this back in 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. Just stop worrying about your food. What comes out of your mouth is so much more important than what you put in your mouth. And it upset the Pharisees. You might say, Zach, they were a little upsetty spaghetti. They were most certainly upsetty spaghetti. They were offended. Oh, no. The Prince of Peace offended somebody. He did. And can you imagine... Like, I think you have to think about this within the context of the disciples. The Pharisees are the ruling class of the Jews. They have incredible, incredible power, both religiously and politically, within the people of Israel. And the disciples are coming back and be like, you, you just made them mad. You, you just told them you don't have to keep kosher. Like, it's a big deal. This is no small matter. You've pissed off the ruling class. So the disciples, because this is the world that they're in, these are the rulers they have been under, they understand the impact of Jesus publicly rebuking, offending, making mad these Pharisees. 15 through 20, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. I love having Peter around. <laughs> and he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We love Peter. Peter asks the question that the other people probably don't want to ask. You can, you can experience a lot of the human condition through Peter. Explain this to us. And then Jesus is like, do you not understand? Was I not just clear five seconds ago? Everything you eat turns into waste. Even the delicious pork that you guys consumed last night. Well, not all of you, Michael, you weren't there. It was delicious. Turns into waste, right? The great steak, the good pork, when it's all done, your body's taken all of its nutrients, it turns into stinky waste. Everything. Everything. But your mouth... Your mouth shows your heart. It's actually your heart is what defiles you. Your heart, the seat of, of you, that's what defiles you. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Because it's, it's from the heart that all evil actions first start as thoughts. Somebody once told me, it wasn't too long ago, might have been another pastor. I don't remember who it was. So I'm one bad thought away from a life in prison. All right. I mean, really. One bad thought turns into one bad action. You don't have to look too far in the news to see people tank their lives with one bad thought and one bad action. Like in real ways, not in like make culture, the Pharisees are offended, what kind of ways. Murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, all of those things start in heart. You can't murder somebody, don't murder anybody. You can't murder somebody if you don't have hatred and evil in your heart first. Right? You can't bear false witness if you don't have a heart problem first. All of these things begin in the heart, the deceitful heart. 
What does eating with washed hands have to do with anything? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But your mouth, man, your mouth can be a great evil. James, probably one of my favorite books in the Bible, says, with our mouths in the same breath, we can bless our God and curse our brother. How true is that, right? You can, in one breath, glorify God and then say really horrid things right to the person sitting next to you. Your mouth. Your mouth shows where your heart's at. That's why Jesus is saying, pay attention, hear and understand. Your heart matters more than any tradition. Your faith is more important than any tradition. A couple practical things for this. Kristen and I have some traditions. We came, when we got married, we came with different Christmas traditions. Our tradition, for my family, takes place predominantly Christmas morning. Kristen's family took place predominantly Christmas Eve. Those traditions meshing together now mean we just have one ginormous feast for like 26 hours. It's really great. We combine them into the big thigh Christmas extravaganza, which now includes a tradition our children started, which is an annual talent show. Think about how big the talent show could be if we had 50 grandkids. I'm just saying. You guys could put on like a full, like a full theater production. Just wanted you to chew on this. Think about it for a couple decades. I'll be very disappointed if not. But this is something fun. It's something we look forward to. We have these traditions of, of how we spend time together at Christmas Eve, how we spend time together Christmas morning, how we spend time with my mom usually on Christmas afternoon. They're important traditions to our family. But if there was a Christmas where we couldn't do one of those traditions, we'd be okay. We might be disappointed. Like if you only brought 48 grandchildren. We might be disappointed, but we'll still be okay. I have the tradition of wearing a collar. Not even a lot of pastors in my communion do. I like the tradition. It's just a symbol. I don't get magic powers with it. Nothing. I don't get to shoot cool stuff. Bible verses out of my fingertips or something rad like that. It's not to be worshipped. It doesn't elevate me to magical pastor status. It just is a way for me to identify who I'm a slave to. If I couldn't wear it, I'd still be okay. I wouldn't lose my pastoral status if I couldn't wear my collar. It's just a tradition. Not a bad tradition. Our Christmas traditions are not a bad tradition. But sometimes, sometimes, tradition becomes law. And this is where it becomes problematic. This could be within a family. You could have demands that are placed upon you, traditions that are treated legalistically. That's not healthy, that's not good. But it becomes heretical, especially when you start tying religion to it. The Jews have religious tradition. The Catholics, Roman Catholics, have religious tradition. The Greek or Eastern Orthodox have religious tradition, and all three of those groups treat their tradition like it's law. They treat it like it's binding law. They claim, all three of those groups claim, even if they don't say it in words, that their tradition supersedes the Bible. That it's tradition, and God's word, and everything else. Two things happen. One, it always ends up bastardizing and manipulating scripture every single time. And two, it always is works-based. Number one is because, as we've said, man's heart is deceitful. And if you leave it up to man to write his own rules, he will manipulate the rules to suit his own needs. Or he will come up with rationalizations 
on why he doesn't have to do that particular rule because of all the exceptions that he has supposedly found. That's why lawyers are adept at loopholes. I saw loopholes in lawyers in the same sentence and I said the words wrong. But see, religious rulers are no different than current day lawyers. They're looking for religious loopholes. And all that does is show you the sinful heart. It literally shows you the sinful heart. And it's always works-based. Because there's always these activities, right? Something you physically have to do for the tradition. You must follow this tradition or else. And, and what it says without actually saying it is the tradition is what saves you. If you do enough Hail Marys, if you follow enough commandments, if you do it good enough, if you do it good enough, that, that's going to bring you your salvation. But the reality is, and you all know this, it can't save you. Actually, it'll leave you in a deeper pit than when you started. I experienced this as a religious Jew, trying to live out works-based faith, works-based salvation. But there's other consequences too. Not only are there eternal consequences, which are the biggest ones, but there's also cultural consequences of like being kicked outside the camp. So we're experiencing this right now in clown world, woke world, the world outside. There are a set of traditions that are being treated religiously, and if you choose not to participate, you are sent outside the camp. You are a person non grata. You get canceled, or there's impacts to your job or the way that you live because you happen to say something that was true. But the current tradition, which is treated religiously, considers it to be blasphemy. Blasphemy. Uh, Mere Christendom, this book we read over the summer, I think a few of you are reading it, uh, Doug talks in there about blasphemy laws and why we want blasphemy laws, and then people go, ah, it's a bunch of Christians who want Sharia laws. Not even remotely true. And Doug points out this really important point. He said, there's, there's blasphemy laws everywhere. The question is, what are, what are the laws for blasphemy, right? <laughs> we have blasphemy laws in the United States. There are words that you cannot say. There are words that you cannot say, and if you say them, you will be in trouble. I have been told on a couple occasions through the legal system there are words that I am not allowed to say. Blasphemy laws. So really the question you should ask is by what standard and who should we all have defining our laws, and it's God. But that's a different sermon for a different day. The point is these traditions, these laws, these workspace, the woke world's all works-based, by the way, always end up in a pit of destruction. When I was Jewish, there are 613 laws for Jewish men to follow. 613. And you were to follow them flawlessly, and they were all designed by men, and they all come out of the oral tradition. And the modern Hasidic Orthodox groups believe if you had flawless fulfillment of the law, that would bring the Messiah back. He's already come back and he's here. And what do you think this happens to people who, who act like this and think like this? It actually puts them in a place of religious pride. It makes them insular. We're here, we're doing the thing, we're better. <coughs> we're following all the rules. We're God's chosen people. You can get this in legalistic Christian groups. Anytime you end up in legalism, you end up, I think, in this kind of pietistic, prideful religiosity. We see it culturally with the pagans, too. People who've made environmentalism their faith. Or the woke world, I don't call it DEI, I call it DIE for diversity, inclusion, equity, because it usually just ends up in companies and people's deaths. But right, like there is 
hard adherence. If you, do, if you follow all of this, nobody will ever say an unkind word again because we'll get rid of all the microaggressions. You end up in this kind of pietistic attitude. Well, I did it so much better. Look how inclusive I am. Look how good I am. Look how great I followed all these laws. Sash. All my patches of piety so you know how pious I really am. And then if you couple that religiously, well, we're the chosen people. Any people that believes that they're the chosen group, religiously or even non-religiously, you end up with this, this self-righteousness, this religious workspace self-righteousness that just oozes with pride because you want everybody to know how perfectly you're following the rules. It actually becomes about you. Look how well I did. Look how good I am. Look how great I am. Look at those losers over there. Wow. You guys can't even keep the law. I'm over here doing it perfect. Well, I mean, most of it. There's this part over here I don't like. But we've rationalized why I don't have to keep that part. But I keep the rest of it perfect. You see? It's still smug and prideful and righteous. And I think there's another... Another problem here as well is that it actually lets unsaved people live in a manner that they believe that they're saved. They believe that their salvation comes through their own hard work, religiously or, or non-religiously, whatever their tradition they've attached themselves to is, instead of bending the knee to Christ and coming with a humble heart. You can be a hardened unbeliever and act righteous even in your unbelief. You can be a hardened unbeliever and act righteous in your unbelief. I've experienced this. I'm sure you all have experienced this in your life. The beauty of the way God works with His elect is that He cuts deep into the sinful heart to bring His people to Him to hear his voice through humility, not through your works, not through who your parents are, not through your last name. It's interesting that Jesus was outspoken and he offended the Pharisees. Because being outspoken as a Christian will offend some people. Recently, in some of the legal stuff we were dealing with, some of the letters I get point out the fact that I used to be Jewish. They like to point out that I used to be Jewish. Like, I'm supposed to still be Jewish. And there's outrage. You used to believe this, and you don't now, and this is all just a ruse. I get called a hypocrite for being a pastor. Not by Christians. You were Jewish. You can't leave. You don't have a choice. You, you used to lead all the Jewish, the Jewish life cycle events. You know these things. Like, it, it's, it's anger. You offended us. I can't believe you said that the only path in life is Jesus Christ. People are mad. They're offended. Because sometimes, many times, when you tell the truth and people's hearts haven't been softened by Jesus, they're offended. These types of people need rebuke. I've had to give these people rebuke in my life, and there may be people that you will kindly and compassionately have to rebuke in your life. The Prince of Peace still told the truth 
even when it was offensive to people. See, being compassionate doesn't mean we have, and telling the truth doesn't mean that we get to have bad behavior. We've talked about this many times. You can be kind and not nice. You can be truthful and kind. That's your goal, is to be truthful and kind, not placating. We see that here with Christ. He's compassionate. He heals people. He heals people that just wanted him for healing, that wanted nothing else. People that were just using him for something. He heals them, even the people who didn't crave Jesus, because he used that event to later rebuke the Pharisees who were heretics to tell the truth to this whole group of people that he healed. He knew what he was doing. Sometimes being compassionate means confronting things head on. God cannot be compassionate if God does not confront sin. Christ came with sword. But he's also the Prince of Peace. You have to remember that Jesus' very existence in the world is unsettling to the pagans and to those who are not in belief. It offended them then, and it most certainly offends them now. In that same legal situation, I was made fun of in a court hearing for saying that I would pray for somebody. That's how you know we've entered clown world, by the way. If you live a biblical life, if you live a life of all of Christ for all of life, you will most certainly offend somebody. It's true. But just like Jesus told the Pharisees, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. This is the reminder. All those who God has not chosen will be sent to an eternity of destruction. It doesn't matter how hard you worked here. It doesn't matter how many commandments of the 613 you, you tried to follow as a Pharisee. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It didn't matter if you helped 19 old ladies across the street just yesterday. You should do that, though, as well. If you don't have faith in Christ, the gates of hell are wide open for you. So stop worrying about your tradition. And stop following man. And start thinking about the awe that you should have for God. And the whole point that Jesus gets to is that it has to begin here, in your heart. It's not here with your hands. The heart is going to drive our hands. Our heart has to know the Lord first before we can take him out into the world and change the world. Religious tradition that is treated as gospel will trick you that your works will do this for you. Maybe you like, kind of like the Gnostic feelings of, well, I don't really want anything really like, firm in the book, but I want to feel good about God, and then I'll just do these same rituals over and over again, and that's how I know. That's how I know. But it can't work. The heart is deceitful above all things. If, if we are allowing our own will to drive our own religious practice, it just becomes all about us. Because the heart is the seat of everything. And only one person can repair a broken heart. Only one person can renew us to give us new life, to heal our hearts, and that's Jesus Christ. We talked last week about faith specifically. This is faith. It is the faith alone in Christ that saves us, not man, not tradition. 
Faith in the promises of God. Faith in the goodness of God. Faith to Sam, firm, never in fear of man, even when they're yelling at you, but yeah, you can't, you can't be a pastor. You're, you have to be Jewish. I understand. You're a hypocrite. You don't even wash your hands before you eat. I saw you eat a cheeseburger. See, Jesus wasn't afraid of hypocrites or tyrants or Pharisees or rulers. <laughs> he wasn't afraid of them so much that he rebuked them. John, too. Look what happened to John for rebuking Herod. His head ended up on a platter. But when Jesus rebukes the sinners and rebukes the heretics, he doesn't do it with unkindness, he just does it with facts. He's not mean. He points out the fact of the matter your heart needs a change. The only thing that will make you not a hypocrite is knowing how deceitful your heart is and knowing how much you actually need God. That's why humility is the only path to faith. We were just talking about this before church. You can't accept a free gift of grace if you don't believe you need it. You can't accept the free gift of grace if you don't believe you need it, if you're pumped up in your own works righteousness in any capacity, Roman Catholic, woke world, anywhere in between, if you're pumped up in this works righteousness where you've earned it, it's all about you, there's no humility. It always ends up in pride. And it will always fail you. But see, saving faith changes the heart. Saving faith in Jesus Christ changes the heart. It restores the heart. It encourages you to live this renewed life, the sanctification that comes through your salvation, through Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. See, the Pharisees were the blind leading the blind. We have that in the world now. It's really sad to see, too, because you can see where it leads people. Once you've removed yourself and you've humbled yourself, and you've come to the cross on your knees, and you, I think you get clarity as you look at the world because you want to pray for them. You're like, I don't want you to... I, it's like a parent. I can see around the corner. You're like, you're going to fall in the pit. This, this leads you to destruction. This leads you to destruction. It's the blind leading the blind. Just look at this current election cycle. I'm so grateful I don't have the news. But I just have to laugh. See, guys on the right finding all the sins of the people on the left. Three days later to find out the people on the right who were pointing the finger had com you know, committed the exact same sins, and now their videos are showing up on the internet. It's the blind leading the blind, pretending that their works are going to save them. And even if you don't experience it in this life, there is an eternal pit that the unfaithful end up in no matter what. This is why we as Christians are to be joyful people, because we are to be joyful and rejoice constantly, because we have been saved from that. If you don't know where you sit with Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, pray that he works in your heart. Pray that he cuts deep in your heart. Pray that he changes your heart, that you get to experience true glory, true joy, true strength. 
that can only be experienced through humility, meekness, and weakness. Part of the way we do this is we confess our sins. It's why we do it on our knees. Right? It, it's, a, it's a physical posture. It's a tradition. We don't worship confessing our sins on our knees. But it's a physical posture that reminds us of the humility we're supposed to have before God for failing to follow his perfect law, but then to stand in joy, to rejoice in the glory that is our salvation from the punishment of our sin. We are supposed to be the most joyful people in the whole world because we are saved people. That's why you should confess your sins and repent and forgive. We talk about it over and over and over again here, but this is why it is so important for all of us here to live a life of all of Christ for all of life. Because then when we do that, we come from this place of humility, not living in the death of our hearts, but rejoicing in the glory of God who's made us new. We get to see the grace of God in every single thing. Last night we talked about Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 4, and the beauty of creation. So beautiful. Look at that. Look at the stuff growing in this room. The beauty of creation. Delicious food being made right over there. The beauty of creation. A ginormous walk-in cooler full of delicious beers. The beauty of God's creation. You see, when you separate from tradition and you walk fully in faith, you actually get to experience new life. Like, that's not pretend. It really is new life. It's new life. It's new joy. It's all things new. And it's not just for today. It's for forever. It's for a thousand generations. It's why we want a whole bunch of grandkids. It is. So they can experience the glories of God's grace. And then they take that grace and they share it out. There are very few things in life that you can lead bottom up. We can change the world as a small community bottom up because you are adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. You can't change your companies, right? You have tyrannical rulers, potentially. One of you I know for sure has. At the top of an organization, and a hammer down, it's much harder to change that bottom up, right? But we are building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, and we can stand up to tyranny with a full suit of armor because we have the armor of God, and we do it with, with, with joy on our face, and we say, hear and understand. Do you not understand? Real life, real joy is to only be found in Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the promises of God? They're incredible. They're incredible. And they're promises. So my encouragement for you this week is to live. To live all of Christ for all of life. Rejoicing in, in the beautiful things that God has given you. And to be thoughtful about your heart and your mouth. It's not what goes in, but it's what comes out. It starts here in the seat of our heart, and then we carry that out in our hands. And if our hearts are given over and committed to God, our hands will do the work to build his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly grateful for your word, for this time here together, and for our call to go out and build your kingdom here on earth. And so, Lord, bless us as we do that. Strengthen us that we do it in joy and in laughter. Allow us to stand firm in the face of tyranny and heretical tradition, to lean in with humility and faith, acting as redeemed sons and daughters, doing everything for the glory of your name. Amen.